Ramble. Ramble. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Bada bing, bada boom. Welcome to this week's mini soda of Rotten Mango and Halloween special. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue, and let's just jump right into the case. This takes place in Spain, in a countryside village called La Romona. It just sounds beautiful, okay? It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's... It's a village. There aren't any streets. There's no roads. There's not even a stoplight. So imagine all of these little houses in these grassy hills. You don't even have driveways to the house. I mean, it sounds picture perfect. That's where Gabriel Gonzalez lived. Now, he's a retired farmer. But he had been working his whole life. So when he stops working, he's thinking, I, I can't. I can't just sit here. I can't do nothing. I can't just sit around and wait for the sun to go down. No, I got to start doing something. So he starts taking up all these random hobbies. The hobbies that he's always wanted to do, but he didn't have time for. One of those was beekeeping. He's like, I love bees. I want to keep them. <laughs> so his property wasn't that large. With beehives, you can't just stick them in your backyard. You can't just stick them in your front porch. So he starts asking around and one of his relatives is like, hey, near my house, there's this massive abandoned house that nobody goes to. I mean, truly, not even the teenagers in the area. I don't even think they really go to it. Why don't we keep the beehives near that place? We just go, tend to the bees, you know. If someone stumbles upon it, you think that they're going to jack our beehives? Absolutely not. Gabriel's relative's name was Jose. So the two of them, they start beekeeping together. They start going to this abandoned house together. And this particular morning, they wake up and drive down there. It's 10 a.m. Okay, well, maybe we should wait for the morning chill to kind of leave. I don't know if it's because they were cold. I don't know if maybe the bees are angry when they're cold. So they're waiting a little bit. They're walking around. Jose's smoking cigarettes. Gabriel, he's in his 70s at this point. So he's just taking a nice little stroll around the area. Just rummaging about when something catches his eye. And he looks down at the ground and he sees something out of the corner. Something shiny. What is that? He bends down and he squints his eyes. Because he's old and he starts screaming. Oh my God, Jose, Jose, you have to come help. Now, Jose was sitting on the other side of the house smoking a cigarette thinking, what, what is wrong with this old guy? Okay, what's his deal? So he slowly gets up, meets him halfway and he's like, you have to follow me. Hurry, hurry, hurry. So at this point, we've got two of these men bending down, looking over at the ground. Well, what is it? Right there. Look, look, look. And he says, well, all I see are just a bunch of branches piled together. I mean, yeah, it's like a small hole. What am I supposed to be looking at? Is something wrong with you? Like, are you getting old? Now, Jose happened to have a spatula in his pocket. Spatula? <laughs> okay, let me explain. It said that he used it for bees. You're like, okay, keep explaining. I don't know. I don't know why you oh, need a spatula. Maybe you sometimes scoop they up do the bees. Scoop. Yeah, they scoop yeah, yeah, yeah. the bees because so, you have to transport them. Exactly. To yeah. the pan. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so he used the spatula for the bees and he starts poking around the leaves with his spatula. Now, maybe normally he would have continued to make fun of Gabriel, but... He's, it just felt like something was weird. This mm -hmm. didn't feel like, a oh, this old man is just being dramatic or maybe his eyesight's deteriorating. Something felt weird about it. And then he saw it. They both did. It was a big, shiny watch staring at them. Not a big deal, right? Except it was still attached to an arm. They would later find in this hole three bodies, 
two of them decapitated, stacked on top of each other with some of the most brutal wounds that I will be talking about. It became an international case in Spain. Who are the Alcazar girls? As always, full source notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com, but there's a really good docuseries on Netflix called The Alcazar Girls. Um, it's it's like a six-part series. It's so good. I know that some people might have a problem with um, there's no dubs, so it's all in Spanish, but there are subtitles, so I highly recommend if you can read the subtitles, you need to watch this. It's heartbreaking. The timeline gets put into perspective. If you look online, there's... There's some really questionably translated articles. Yes, there's like a Wikipedia page and stuff. But truly, this gives you such a deep insight on the case. And a lot of the parents are actually interviewed for it. A lot of the family members of the three families because there's three victims in this. Also, I don't know. Maybe it helps you because I'm not from Spain and I've never been to Spain. Um, just seeing the area, just seeing the timeline, the maps and all of these like B-rolls of where everything took place. I think I really understood the case a lot better so that's all in the source notes but let's get into the story let's start with the three girls we've got antonia rodriguez who went by tony she only wanted to be called tony so if you called her antonia she would freak the fork out in fact her older siblings would actually call her antonia just to piss her off okay so to respect that we shall call her tony she was the youngest of four children her older sisters were like a second mom to her they took care of her really really well they were also interviewed for the docuseries and i think that some of the older siblings they they felt that she needed some protecting not in a bad way but she was a very compassionate, nervous person. Her family would joke around that even the smallest little gust of wind, even the smallest little creak of a window would scare the absolute daylights out of her. She would be shrieking. I think that because she was a bit more cautious, her parents didn't worry as much. Like you might be worried because your daughter is so nervous. She's a little bit anxious, but because she's so cautious, she would call home nonstop on the weekends. She would update everyone on her location. Hey, I'm going to here now. Hey, I just got here. Now I'm going here next. You know, they really trusted her. She loved animals. She had found this stray kitten on the way home one day. There was no way she's leaving that stray kitten, okay? There's no way anyone's leaving that stray kitten. So she scoops it up. She runs home and she's like, listen, I promise. I promise I'm going to take care of it. You don't have to scoop the poop. I'll scoop the poop. She raised that kitten like it was her child. She scooped the poop every day. <laughs> her biggest life dream and her anticipation was turning 16. So she was 15 at the time. She wanted to start working ASAP so she could buy new clothes. Then we have um, Desi or Desiree. Her real name is Maria Hernandez Fulch, but she went by Desi or Desiree. And she was one year younger than Tony. She was also the youngest child in her family, just like a super athletic girl. She loves sports. It doesn't matter what she was. She was good. She was competitive. She had really good sportsmanship. She had this super strong personality and she just loved making friends. She was so sociable. Then we have Miriam Garcia Ibora. So Miriam, she was the oldest child, unlike the other two girls. And she had two young brothers. She had this beautiful light brown hair and these blue eyes and everywhere she went everyone was like okay this girl is stunning like how do I tell her she's beautiful she also did ballet that was her biggest passion in life she loved writing poetry reading poetry at this point she's 14 she's like trying to get into college and all of that she was taking college courses early on I believe so she would come home on the weekends to hang out with her friends which were Tony and Desiree now these were like the best of friends they had all grown up around each other in the town of Alcacer I feel like I'm saying that wrong okay so there's a um, it's a small town in the Valencia province it's just like a few thousand residents it's tiny it's in the country 
countryside of Spain. I mean, it's got a ton of beautiful scenery. People go there to hike. That's what I've heard about it. All of the three girls were born in Valencia and they were just super close. They just were comfortable around each other. Sure, Tony was a year older than the other two girls, but they got along well. They were like a best friend group. They loved hanging out at arcades together. And there was another girl, Esther, that always hung out with them. They were like the unstoppable foursome. They were so close and it was so cute. They would do these cute little things for each other. Okay, so before their weekend out, Tony had called into a radio station and she requested a song called Major Tom by Peter Schilling for her friends. So she asked, hey, can you play this song? Okay, can I dedicate it to Esther, Miriam and Desiree to a local radio station? Mm -hmm. And the translated lyrics go something like this. Four, three, two, one, earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless, calling, calling home. So it's about an astronaut um, who is on a space mission and it goes wrong. Oh, no. So before she hangs up, the radio host asks her, what are you doing this weekend? And she says, I don't know, but I'm not staying home. And the next day, Friday, the 13th of November, Tony, Miriam, and Desiree go missing. And this phone call would haunt all of Spain. What year was that? 1992. So let's talk about Friday the 13th. Nothing was out of the ordinary. I mean, truly, Desiree and Miriam went to school earlier that day. Tony hung out with Esther and Miriam briefly goes home and her dad's sick with the flu. And she's like, dang it, dad, I was going to ask you to drive us to the club. Well, it's not. Okay, side note, it's not a club. It's called like a discotheque. So I think it's more of like a gathering place. I don't think it was like a nightclub for these like teenagers. I think maybe it has the club ambience, but maybe not so much as what you're thinking right now. Like a Dave and Buster's without the without the games okay that sounds like a club (laughs) so she decides to do her own thing she's like okay fine like you can't drive us i get it i'll find a different way to get there now the four girls that gather at esther's place this seems like the headquarters every friend group has a headquarters and it was esther's place now they're talking about we got to go to the discotheque in the next town over it's it's called a peak ascent is the next town over i believe but the the club is called cooler (laughs) <laughs> so they're like, we got to go to the cooler club. Our friend is throwing a party there. Like, oh, we got to do this. The town is across the highway. So it's super close. It would probably take 30 minutes for them to walk. So they're debating. Do we walk or do we hitchhike? Now, it's said at this time that Esther's mom had overheard this conversation. And she looks at the girls and she says, whoa, whoa, don't hitchhike or something's going to happen to you one day. And they continue to do their thing. Now, Esther was also feeling a bit sick. So she decided that she was going to stay in. She said bye to them. They left her place around 8 p.m. And they headed for what we assume was the disco in the next town over. But we don't really know. What would later bother a ton of people is that none of the girls had money to spend at the club and they didn't have pre-purchased tickets to get into the club. So you needed to pay for entrance at this place. But Mm -hmm. they didn't bring any money. But they start making their way anyway. They run into a close friend of theirs named Francisco, and they're talking about what their Friday night plans are. Francisco's like, well, I'm freaking studying. That sucks. What about you guys? Oh, are you guys headed to the disco, the cooler disco for the party? Now, this is where it's so strange. He claims that the girls had told him no. Now, mind you, they had just left Esther's, and that's what they told her. Did they change their minds in like the two minutes that it took? Is he lying? Maybe it was miscommunication. Maybe he didn't hear them correctly. Did they lie to Esther? I mean, truly, I see no reason for them to lie. Maybe miscommunication. 
Later, they're seen hitchhiking, trying to catch a ride when another friend of theirs named Francisco drives by. Now, he's an older kid, so he's got his own car and he's with his girlfriend in the car. And he's like, oh, hey, I know these kids. Like, why are they hitchhiking? This is so dangerous. So he pulls on over and he's like, what's wrong with you guys? Do you, do you need a ride? Where are you going? Yeah, we're trying to get to the cooler disco. Oh, yeah. I mean, we can take you there. Let's go. So they get into his car. But as they were headed to the next town over, his car engine lights start going off like crazy. I think there was some sort of fuel tank link. Like it wasn't it wasn't one of those like tire pressure lights that you just ignore for miles and miles. It was uh, something serious like he needed to address it immediately. So Mm -hmm. he says, hey. I'm so sorry. Like, can I just drop you off here? I mean, it's a little bit closer than where you were. So I did some progress, but I need, I need to get my car to an auto shop. So he drops them off in the next town over in Picasent, the town that they're supposed to be in, but they still have to get to the club, right? Mm-hmm. So they get out and that's kind of when the girls go missing. We don't really know what happened. So somewhere between there and multiple blocks away from the club, they disappear. That's it? Just a couple blocks away? Just a couple blocks. I mean, these are all small towns. I think that's what also just made all of the press, all of the public go crazy. Because these are small towns where it's not like you're getting lost in New York City. Yeah. How does that make sense? Exactly. So the girls go missing. And that night, the girls' respective parents, they all start individually panicking. They get together. They walk into the police station in the neighboring town near the cooler disco to report them gone, to report them vanished. But nobody at the police station would actually start looking for the girls for days. They just kept telling the parents, well, the night is still young. It's only 11 p.m. I mean, sure, they have curfew at 10, but it's only 11. Maybe they're out kissing boys. Maybe they ran away. Have you thought about that? These are teenage girls with their best friends. You have to wait 24 hours to report them missing. But every single family knew that this was impossible. I mean, they didn't bring any money. They had no reason, no resources, no motive. I mean, why? None of this makes sense. And eventually, the police were on board. They thought, okay, you know what? It is a little strange because Miriam, she had a money box left with her whole life savings in there, which, yeah, it's not a lot. But if you're a 16-year-old kid running away, you're going to take everything you can. If you're Desiree, why would you pack a bag to go skating the next day? The bag was packed already. Then Mm -hmm. Tony had made plans for Saturday. That didn't make sense. She wouldn't blow off her friends. So they start interviewing the family, friends. And a couple days later, the girls are still missing. And that's when they get a phone call. A tip comes in to the police. Maria Dolores Soria, a 63-year-old woman, said, Oh my gosh, I just saw the local news. And I, I was in my apartment that night, Friday the 13th, and I had seen the girls. I saw them and they were getting into a car. What? Okay, Maria, explain to us what happened. So I live in the neighboring town where the club is. I actually live just a few minutes walk from the club, okay? So very, very close distance, easily walkable. And it was around, I don't know, maybe 8 something p.m. I look out my window and I see the three girls walk by the house. Okay, that makes sense, right? But then, then I see a white car pull up, a small one, a sedan, a small four-door white car. What? Okay, what, what was the make and model? Well, you see, I, I didn't see that because I was in my apartment and I'm 63. I didn't have my, I don't know, binoculars on. I'm kidding. <laughs> my mom's 63. She's going to get so mad at me when she listens to this. You know, I didn't have my glasses on. I didn't see. Okay, so they get into the car. Did you see anyone in the car? Well, that's where it gets weird. I saw at least three or four guys in the car, maybe five. What? So you're saying the three girls crammed into this tiny car that already had five guys in it? In a four, four-door small sedan? Yes, that's what I saw. At least three to five guys in the car already. They looked a little bit older than the girls. 
you know, the girls are young teenagers. Maybe they they look like early 20s, these guys. Okay, I mean, none of that makes sense. Why would the girls get into this jam-packed car when they're only a few minutes away from their destination? They're so close. It's not like they had to go miles and miles. I mean, none of that makes sense. The police find out they're the cooler club and all the people that had attended the party that the girls didn't even come to the party. Nobody saw them. There was no evidence that they even made it there. So because Maria hadn't gotten a license plate or even a car make and model, the police have no leads. They start interviewing the sex offenders in the area. Nothing. Then they just start really interviewing anyone with a police record. Like you jaywalked one time, you're getting interviewed for the disappearance of the Alcazar girls. Okay, but none of this led anywhere. So the family and the small town, the small little cities in the province of Valencia, they start printing off thousands and thousands of flyers for the three girls. I think because it was such a small town, I mean, it just made everyone so passionate. You are related to these girls in some degree. Maybe your kid went to school with them. Maybe you had worked at a shop and one of the girls had stopped by that was like a regular place to get coffee. Do you know what I mean? It's just one of those small town passionate pleas like we've got to bring our girls home. They became representatives of this small town now a month goes by they're still not found so the interior minister of spain becomes personally interested in this small town case and he essentially pushes it into a national full-scale i mean just an absolute shit show media circus that's what happens the media outlets start talking about the missing girls the minister sets up a task force to find the girls called uco the unit of central operations operating out of valencia he had brought in all of these agents from madrid to valencia so that they could specifically spend all of their time looking for the three girls so at this point the attention for the case is only growing even the president of spain gets involved and a lot of this has to do with fernando so this is miriam's dad fernando who really was the face of the whole campaign he was the one that was sick with the flu and refused to drive them because he was so sick mm -hmm. to the club i think that really just weighed on him he was this hard-working man he was relatable i mean truly everyone in spain saw him as their dad <laughs> he's like just that typical dad like he looks like that and miriam was everyone's daughter like she was just so relatable he was smart fernando was smart i'll give him that okay he knew that what he needed to give the reporters for them to want to keep it on the news he knew that the news cycle was short he mm -hmm. knew that people got sick of stories so he knew exactly how to make it quote unquote interesting enough Otherwise, without him, this case might have just faded away. It was actually a lot of it had to do with how much press it was getting, how much attention that they actually expanded it to search foreign nations, too. So all of the bordering countries got involved. Wow. Interpol, the international police, they get involved. They have lookouts in other European and African countries. The parents were constantly interviewed for TV shows about missing people. Fernando even convinced Valencia City Hall to give him a room for free. And he was taking tips. He was operating a volunteer search, a little mini unit by himself, receiving letters from all around the world with tips, with money to help the search, with all of that. Like he was running a full scale operation. He quit his job and poured his heart, soul, tears. I mean, this this like tore up his life. But Fernando also did some questionable things as well. OK, he got an anonymous tip that the girls were being held at someone's house. And he's thinking, okay, well, let's just go search it. He tells the police, all right, I got the address. Let's go, let's go. And the police are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't just show up to the police station with an address and expect, expect us to swat them. Like, that's just not how it works. Where's the proof? Do you have any evidence? Mm -hmm. You have none? No, we can't just go search people's houses. What's wrong with you, Fernando? Fernando's like, well, I'm going to break in. I'm going to search that house. They're like, you can't do that either. We're going to have to arrest you. 
So he's like, okay, okay, fine, I won't do it. So he goes back home and he's kind of moping around like, what do I do, what do I do? And someone had given him a little weird tip. They said, you know, the police do search places when they get anonymous tips, though. So he writes an anonymous letter that says, I have proof, you know, blah, 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 blah. These people are holding them hostage. And guess what happens? Who are these people? Just an innocent family. So the whole house gets swatted. They storm the house in the middle of the night and the family was innocent. The girls were not there. Now, the family was also nice enough to not press charges against Fernando because they said that they felt for him and, you know, they can only imagine what it takes to be in this position. Like what, it, what this feeling is. Of course, you're not trying to be mean. You're not trying to hurt people. You just want your kid back. That's it. That's all you're thinking about. So at first, their missing posters were also black and white, very serious photos of the three girls. But then they changed it to younger, innocent looking pictures with color, with rosy cheeks. And because of this picture change, more people started to care. Listen, I say this wow. once and I say this a million times. Keep a picture of yourself that is quote unquote relatable, that doesn't have a Snapchat filter, that looks very family friendly. And I hate saying this because I hate that this is the world that we live in. But if something happens to you, this picture can really make a difference in how much exposure your case gets. Crazy. Yeah. And it worked because more people started caring and they printed over 5 million posters and flyers and just spread it all across Spain. Even Miriam's brothers, her little brothers went on TV and they pled, if you know anyone, if you know anything about where my big sister is, please let me know. Fernando set up meetings with journalists all over Europe. He even wanted to meet the Pope so that the churches and cathedrals around the world, they could get involved, keep an eye out, be on the lookout. And just like this, two months passed. So we go from November 13th to January 27th. And hours away, in the countryside village, La Romana, they find the bodies. I love meal deliveries. In fact, I love everything about having my meals delivered straight to my doorstep, except the delivery fees. That's why I signed up for the Dash Pass, an exclusive membership from DoorDash that lets you make an unlimited amount of fee-free orders for eligible orders. Whether it's food from your favorite restaurants, groceries from across town, or anything in between, the Dash Pass can get you $0 deliveries and lower service fees on eligible orders. That means you can easily save money at your favorite restaurants and grocery stores the dash pass practically pays for itself in two orders on average the math is mathing plus dash pass gives you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items and all of this for only $9.99 a month open the door to zero dollar delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else sign up for dash pass today only on doordash and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member subject to change terms apply When I was in high school, I had this ritual every day after coming home from school. I would grab a salty snack, sit down, watch my favorite mystery drama on TV. And recently I discovered the adult version of that, which at the end of the workday, I grab salt and vinegar chips, snuggle up on the couch, and I play June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden objects mystery game that makes me feel like I'm living inside of a mystery TV show that is very immersive. You play as Detective June Parker, and you just found out that your sister and husband were murdered. This is a fictional story. 
So you fly from London to New York to investigate, but the clues are just not adding up. So you get to go through these series of scenes from the mansion living room to a lavish garden to a 1920s style New York cafe. In each room, you have to find hidden objects that help you solve the mystery of your sister's death. And in the meantime, a whole lot of unexpected Just scandalous twists are going to happen. There's family secrets, danger, there's romance. I love traveling all over the world with June. Currently, I'm exploring Paris in the 1920s. Because the game is set in the 1920s, it just has the most aesthetic game design ever, and it's so cozy. Whenever I need a break from the suspense, I can pause the story and head over to my private island. Yeah, they give you a private island and you get to customize it however you want for you. I love cottage core mixed with that old money vibe with a huge mansion and a luxurious garden and even like this train rail. June's journey is the best way to unwind at the end of a long day or just to take a break in the middle of the day when I feel overwhelmed. I can escape all of my problems and turn into Detective June. Discover your inner detective when you download June's journey for free today on iOS and Android. So of course, the two guys, Gabriel and Jose, when they find this watch that's still attached to an arm, I mean, they really only see the arm. I told you kind of what was buried in that hole, but they had just seen the pale arm and this giant watch attached to it. So their immediate thought was, a man has been buried. A man has been buried. So they freak out, they call the police, and the police take their sweet time getting out there. I don't know why. I think maybe they were thinking the victim's already dead. The hand belonged to a man. I don't know if that's the reason. They're like, yeah, it's probably nothing. We're looking for the Alcazar girls anyway. We're busy. But nobody, nobody originally suspected that it was one of these girls. And not in a million years. Why would she be here? I think the timing for this finding was also really stressful and strange because that day, the task force was being replaced in Valencia. So the original team that was handling this case, the task force, they were headed back to Madrid and the minister was completely replacing them with a new team. I don't know if they were incompetent. I don't know if it was public pressure. I don't know if he just willy-nilly was like, hey, do you guys miss your family in Madrid? Let me send out a new team. But that day... They were swapping teens. So technically, there was a couple of days in between where there was no task force for the girls in Valencia. At the same time, Miriam's dad was out of town doing interviews to get his daughter's case out there. So he was in London at the time. So when the police arrive at the crime scene, they realize, oh, maybe this is like has something to do with the missing girls. Maybe it's somewhat related. The UCO, the task force, wouldn't be there to facilitate the crime scene handling or the evacuation of the bodies. So the task force that had been working on this for months, they wouldn't be there. It would just be the local police of this small town that were handling, facilitating, evacuating the bodies. Mm -hmm. And it would be a huge price to pay later. A huge price because it practically ruined the entire investigation. Once the police get there, they realize that there are three bodies in the pit that had been dug, stacked on top of each other. They were all in various stages of decomposition. They had been wrapped up in this some sort of like large rug. It was like this greenish color. Their hands were tied behind their backs. Two of the girls were decapitated. And in the hole, there were a couple other things. A large t-shirt that might have been one of the girls. Inside the t-shirt, they found two stones rolled up in the shirt. Okay, immediately when I heard this, I was thinking maybe to like hit someone with it. Because, you know, you can fling yeah. your shirt around, right? But the police left the stones at the crime scene. Didn't even log them wow. into evidence. They found a torn corduroy jacket, fibers belonging to other clothes, pieces of paper with writing on it, rope. Not just any rope, but like sailing rope 
They found it 10 feet away from the bodies. They found like video game cartridges, a bunch of trash. They found bits of bones and vertebrae. They found other pieces of wood and paper. And at the bottom of the grave, they found a shell casing for a gun. So here's everything that they screwed up at the crime scene. The police didn't come for hours. So technically that compromises the crime scene just by doing that. We don't know who else was out there. We don't know if, you know, I don't think they did, but just in the eyes of the law, we don't know technically, legally speaking, if Jose or Gabriel did anything with the crime scene. I don't think they did, but I'm just saying this is what a defense attorney would say. Mm -hmm. Then they were also in such a rush that nobody, nobody thought to take pictures of how everything was. (laughs) I think there was one picture that they took before they dug up the bodies, but that's about it. They didn't really take pictures as they were going. Nobody documented how the bodies were found. I mean, nothing. Nobody searched the area before they started digging. This part is kind of important because the girls didn't seem to have been killed there. So were they killed somewhere else? Exactly. The police did take pictures of all the things in the hole with the bodies, but after they dug it up. So it doesn't really prove what was in the hole and what was found near the hole, what was found 10 feet away from the bodies. I mean, it's just all up in the air. Were the items on top of the bodies, on them, under them, tangled up with them? Like, these are all important. Some of the things that they took pictures of weren't even taken from the crime scene into evidence. Yeah. The ones that were taken into evidence, they were kept in plastic bags for days, if not weeks. Now, this is really bad because it contaminates the evidence. That's why you don't see a lot of evidence in plastic bags. If something is wet and you put it into a plastic bag, it grows fungus, it grows mold, and that compromises any DNA, any bacteria, you know, just really anything that could be used as forensic evidence. So they just like stuck it into like, I don't know, Ziploc bags. So when the bodies are autopsied, they find some wild things. So Tony was found without her head. Her arms were tied behind her back. She had a watch on. That's the one the beekeepers spotted. The doctors believed that she had been viciously sodomized and her cause of death was gunshot wound to the head. Now, I don't really know how they got this cause of death without her head, but that's what they said. It's also uh, maybe important to know that we don't know if she was decapitated. We don't really know what happened to her head. Oh, we don't know where it is. Yeah, we don't know where her head is. And we also don't know if she was decapitated or if it was some sort of like wildlife situation that went on. I don't think it was, but it didn't really like it wasn't stated like it was um, like she was beheaded. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Then Desiree, she was found tied up. One of her arms was just kind of in like this almost inhuman like angle. It looked broken. Did that happen after death? We don't really know. Um, We do know that she was partially eaten by wild animals in the area. She was also found decapitated. She had been raped, sodomized, stabbed in the chest. But most disturbing of them all was that someone had removed her nipples with pliers. Wow. So her cause of death was also gunshot wound to the head. Again, I don't know how they know this. Then Miriam was found. Her head was still attached to her body, but she was missing a ton of teeth. It looked like she had been beaten while she was assaulted. Doctors believe that some of the assaults may have taken place even after her death. So these are really sick people we're talking about. Mm -hmm. These are not just like, oopsie. You know, this is some crazy torture is involved. There's rape involved. Like, what is happening to three girls, it's going to probably take more than one person, no? 
So the police get straight to work. They go over the pieces of paper found at the scene and they piece it together like a little puzzle. And they realize that one of the pieces of paper comes from a nearby hospital in Valencia. And it's like one of those, you know, when you get discharged from the hospital, they give you like a, hey, take this medicine, you know, Mm -hmm. one of those official hospital sheets, which usually has the patient name on there. It was from a year ago for a man by the name of Enrique Angles. And he was actually being treated for an STD a year ago. And the piece of paper was found at the scene. That's crazy. Who would left that? Yeah. So there was a lot of test about this, right? So who would leave it? Did someone leave it on purpose? Did someone not think about it? I don't know. But they also um, tested if you were to just let go of pieces of paper near the city, where would it end up? Because there's a lot of hills in this area. So there's a lot of wind. I don't think you can't really yeah, test that, can I know. You? So all of these are just kind of up in the air. Like, it sounds really dumb for someone to leave it, but at the same time, like, what? Yeah. If he didn't leave it, then what happened? So Enrique doesn't really ring a bell to any of the officers right away. They're not like, oh, I know this guy. But they do. They do know his brother and his best friend, Miguel. Okay? They were the bad ones. Enrique's brother's name is Antonio, and he was just... A bad cookie. So was his best friend, Miguel. So Miguel Ricard, he was born in Valencia, Spain. He had a rough childhood. I mean, his mom had died when he was three years old. His dad was his single parent now. And he was a bit of a violent alcoholic. He was just not a nice person. Because of this abusive household that he grows up in, Miguel just had a couple of things he was dealing with. Sometimes he'd be super shy. Then he'd be super passive. Then one day he'd just wake up and be super aggressive. It seemed like he was always nervous. He spent a lot of time just getting drunk, experimenting with drugs, weed, cocaine. And at the young age of 16, he drops out of school to go to work and he starts as a farmer. Then he upgrades to a used car salesman. He even starts dating. He has a kid of his own before he enlists in the Spanish army. And when he gets back, he's just not the same anymore. It's like right before he left, it seemed like he was trying to get his life together for his kid. But when he gets back, he starts doing drugs again. And his girlfriend is upset like you promised me. Because we have a child now. It's not just about you and me. And so she ends up packing up, taking her daughter with her and leaving him for good. So Miguel is heartbroken. He's upset and he moves in with his best friend slash drug dealer, Antonio Angles. Now, Antonio had an even worse childhood. He was born in Brazil. He was one of nine children. And when he was a few years old, his family moved to Spain. And Antonio's dad was just in and out of the hospital. He had liver issues from drinking. Just intense liver issues. But Antonio wasn't that sad because, I mean, this man was abusive. Their mom couldn't really protect them. She was in a miserable situation, too. She hated her husband, but she was scared for her life. What is she going to do? She can't leave him. He's going to kill her. Eventually, when her kids get old enough, they wouldn't protect her either. They would actually start abusing her, too. Just like the dad. I mean, that they hated so much. None of this makes sense. So Antonio's mom would even later try to file a restraining order against her own son, Antonio. So now that Antonio and Miguel are both together, they don't have jobs, they don't have the work ethic, they start stealing things here and there, Antonio was overall hated by his family because he frequently stole from them, his own family. At this point, Antonio's already infamous amongst the police officers. They already know him, they know his deal, but now Miguel is starting to form his own reputation. They'd both be in and out of jail together. Antonio's charges were almost always a lot worse than Miguel's. Listen, it's not a competition. Because, you know, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. But if it was, Antonio would win, all right? He had just, I mean, an absolutely horrendous criminal record. So he had a friend named Nuria, who is 
hooked on cocaine. I mean, she was very addicted. And I'm sure he played a big role in that, okay? He seems like the type of drug dealer that's going to try to get you addicted so that he can make money off of you. But when she was finally out of money, she just got so desperate. And this is like a side effect of addiction. And she ends up stealing a bag of heroin from him and she used it all. So what does he do? He tries to, quote unquote, teach her a lesson. He kidnaps her, brings her to his mom's house, drags her into a room, ties her up, chains her up, and beats her for close to 25 hours. He probably would have killed her if not one of his brothers, Ricardo, had called the police. Now, Antonio gets sentenced to six years for kidnapping. You're thinking, okay, this is great. This is the end of this little terror reign that Antonio and Miguel are having on this small country, this small town. But one year into his sentence, the prison staff are like, hey, do you need a vacation? Like, prison's really hard, right? Do you, do you just want to, like, have a week-long vacation out of here? <laughs> I know, you're laughing, but this is literally what happened. So they give him a pass to leave for a week. I think in America, the equivalent would be, like, a furlough. And typically, that only happens if you did not commit violent crimes and maybe you had a family emergency like your mom passed. Then you're allowed to go to the funeral. Yeah. But usually it's supervised. Usually it's like just the funeral. But they were like, hey, here's a pass for you to leave for a week unsupervised. And we're just going to trust that you're going to turn yourself back in. And you're going to come back in in exactly a week. You really think Antonio would willingly turn himself back in and go back to prison to serve out the rest of the five years? No. Okay? No, he's not. Imagine you're going to a prison. It's like a job interview and the prisons are trying to impress you. They're like, oh, well, we have more vacation weeks a year. I mean, this whole thing is wild. I just don't even understand. So March 5th of that year, he leaves. And you guessed it. He never comes back. And for months, the prison guards are just scratching their heads. They don't even, they don't even put out a warrant for his arrest. They're like, ah, I'm sure he'll turn up. <sighs> It's been like a month, but what like ugh, he's going to come back. No need for the extra paperwork. Let's do that after like, I don't know, a couple months. They actually won't put a warrant out for his rest till September. He left in March. So next time you feel like you're not doing your job, just think of this moment. So back to the crime scene. They're like, OK, well, we found Enrique. But what we're really looking for is probably his brother, Antonio. It's got to be that guy. So they rush to the uh, Anglais family house and they start turning the place inside out when Miguel just strolls in. Huh? Here's friend Miguel, the one we know of. Well, you're getting arrested. Now, the main reason that Miguel gets arrested is because he's friends with Antonio. Antonio is somewhat linked to the crime scene by his brother's paperwork from the hospital. And Miguel ended up driving a white sedan. It kind of fits the description of Maria that she had seen outside the house, but not really because she doesn't remember the make and model. So imagine how many white sedan drivers are out there in the world. Miguel also admitted that he would sometimes let Antonio borrow his car. So this is, I mean, all of this is so confusing, okay? Because people who know Antonio said that he didn't even have a license. He doesn't even know how to drive. So why is he borrowing your car? Mm -hmm. So the police are ecstatic. They find Miguel. They don't find Antonio yet. But Miguel is good enough. Let's bring him in and show the public that we know how to do our jobs. So they bring him in. Where's your friend Antonio, Miguel? Well, I'm not really sure. I haven't seen him in months. Why? Why haven't you seen him in months? Well, you know, you know how Antonio is. He's a bit he's a bit all over the place. He's a little scary. His mental state is unpredictable. It makes him a little dangerous. What about Enrique? Did Enrique kidnap the girls? And Miguel says, no, no, no. Listen, I don't know what you're trying to do with Enrique. I don't know what you have on Enrique, but he's completely innocent. That guy cannot even hurt a fly. Trust me. 
All right, Miguel. So what were you doing the night of the disappearance, Friday the 13th of November? Oh, I was in prison. You were in prison. When they rush and they look up the records, there's no record of him being in prison. They even called the prison to make sure and they said, nope, we don't have any records. So now the police are like, throw his ass in jail. Let's start looking for his little friends. Meanwhile, the media, they start looking for the victim's families and they ask every horrible, insensitive question. They just wanted to generate chaos in the press. And I think that this is why this is such a famous case in Spain. It also deals with the fact that how media handled the case afterwards. So, I mean, I get it. There is a lot of intense details that do need to be talked about because these are the facts of the case. These mm -hmm. are the facts of the crime. But would you ever go up to a family member of one of the victims and say, and I quote, how does it feel knowing your daughter's nipples were taken? Oh, my God. Like I said, again, these are the facts of the case. But why would you ever ask someone that? They would say things like she was found without her head. But how does that make you feel like they were trying to get a reaction out of the family members? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one thing to interview the family members. It's one thing to get the story out there to make sure people know what a horrible case happened to catch the killers, to get justice. But it's another thing to put them on the spot to try to get them to cry or try to get them to say something or incite some sort of like crazy emotional reaction like that's that's so messed up. They would say things like, well, I heard there's a snuff tape. How do you feel about that? Now, what's crazy about this snuff tape is that later it is somewhat confirmed. Someone close to the family and the case state that they found a snuff tape and it clearly shows the girls being tortured on it. They allegedly said that they gave it to the government, but the government didn't want to do anything with it and they can't release it without getting arrested. So they don't really know what to do with this. This is kind of important later. So it becomes this like battle of the news stations of which network could get the most tears out of the family members. Honestly, that's what it felt like. Like which TV host is going to make the family members cry the most? I mean, just what? And now the police are in a pickle. The media is off to obliterate everything in their path. If they don't even care about the victim's families and they're asking these just wild, wild inappropriate questions then technically the media is going to kill the police too like the media is ready to go after the police the minute that they sense any sort of foolery any sense of they forked it up the police are going to get ripped apart so they need a confession and they need it fast because they don't really have anything on miguel to be honest i mean technically they don't have anything to put him at the crime scene to even be with the girls other than this piece of paper that belonged to his friend's brother and that he drives a white sedan. So it's alleged that they had sleep deprived Miguel for 24 hours. And what do you know? Voila, a signed confession comes to fruition. Don't you just love how that works? When you ask the universe for something and you get it? This is what allegedly happened. According to Miguel, who was allegedly coerced by the police, Look, I'm not defending the guy, but again, coercion it just hurts the case. It interferes with justice. If you have the wrong guy, it hurts the case. If you have the right guy, it hurts the case. And he claims, Antonio and I kidnapped the girls, but they wanted to get in the car. So Antonio is driving. I was in the passenger seat. We drove them two hours to La Ramona, and the girls were totally fine with it. Sure, they thought that we were taking to the, them to the club that was a few minutes away, but instead we drove them to the middle of nowhere in pitch black darkness to the rural countryside of La Ramona, and they didn't care. So immediately the confession is off to a bad start because everyone who knew the girls were like, yeah, they would care. I think anyone in their right minds would care. What are you saying, dude? 
And they said, yeah, once we get to the middle of La Ramona, Miguel said that he had sex with Desiree. So I had sex with Desiree and Antonio went off with the other two girls, Miriam and Tony, and they all had consensual, just fun, casual sex. Now, mind you, these guys are overage and the girls are underage. So immediately, that's still a crime. But okay, let's go on with the confession. Afterwards, he said that Miguel was just doing his own thing. He's just hanging out just in the corner by himself in this dark countryside that has no street lights. So it's technically like pitch black out there. Okay, he's just hanging out when he hears boom, boom, boom. Three gunshots. He rushes over. What is that? What is that? Antonio had killed them all. So then they freaked out. They go to a house nearby. Now, it's kind of like it's a weird situation because they didn't say it was like a friend. It, it sounded like they had robbed a house. They go to a house nearby to pick up a rug. They pick up a greenish rug. They wrap the girls up in it. They dig a grave. Police are like, well, how did you dig the hole? You know, it's it the middle of winter. The soil is rough, right? There's no lights. Did you just happen? Do you keep shovels in your trunk? That's a little weird. You don't even work. You have no job. Why are you? What's a shovel for? You're not a farmer. He said, well, I didn't have a shovel. We just um, we just made do. Do you know how hard it is to dig graves with a shovel for three bodies? Like you're going to be sweating. You're going to be sore for days. You know, just like with our bare hands. Okay. Now, he would later say that this whole confession was coerced. The police tortured him to say all of this and then signed it. Now, listen, I don't know who to blame on this one. Maybe he lied to put all the blame on Antonio. But this is really bizarre that the police would accept a confession like this because it sounds so dumb. It doesn't make any sense. Now, if the police had put him up to it, why would they put him up to such a stupid story? This is like a story that no one in the public would ever be like, you know what? That makes sense. He totally did it. It's like, what? None of that makes sense. So I'm not really sure whose idea it was, but it was just the stupidest story in the world. But it gives the police enough reason to aggressively track down and arrest Antonio, who they firmly believe or want to believe is the main killer of the girls. Now, bear with me here. But apparently when they went to Antonio's house to search for evidence the day that they had arrested Miguel, a lot of Antonio's family members said that uh, Antonio was home. What? That he was home and that the police just missed him. Like they didn't see him. Maybe they didn't want to talk to him. He had a fourth floor apartment. Like the bedroom was on the fourth floor. So it's speculated by the public that uh, the police didn't see him because he crawled out the window like a Spider-Man. And he ran for his life. I highly doubt this, but it just, I mean, this whole story starts getting weirder, okay? It just gets weird because Antonio to this day is on Interpol's most wanted list. He has not been caught to this day. So then the press and media find out that the police didn't facilitate any more search warrants while looking for Antonio. So then they had the speculation that Antonio is just casually living it up with his other family members while he's evading the police. Why aren't their houses being searched? So everything is making people more and more angry with the police at this point. And then the press talks to Antonio's family and friends and all of them say, well, this is an impossible crime. Well, technically, it's impossible for Antonio because he's gay. So now it's like, what? I mean, technically, I don't know if that has anything to do with it because rape is really about power and it's less about sexual attraction. We know that. But the police, they come out and tell the press, no, 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 he didn't rape the girls for pleasure. He actually did it because he hated women so much. 
Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. So the public, I mean, they were kind of on and off about this. You know, some people were saying, well, that's not really, I haven't really seen that because if you look at other rapists, they usually rape people of their sexual attraction. So that that doesn't make any sense. But maybe it does because some people were saying, yeah, it's about hatred. It's about power. So it was just like this really not the strongest motive, Mm -hmm. not the strongest. Oh, yeah, that motherfucker, he did it. Then another tip comes into the police. The day of Miguel's arrest, someone had seen Antonio at a hair salon dyeing his hair, like professionally dyeing his hair (laughs) from like a bleach blonde color to a dark brown color. And the press has another field day with this. Oh, my God, he's changing his look. He's like gone girling us before there was gone girl, you know, but you get the idea. Like, can you believe it? A fugitive. So Interpol gets involved and Antonio still isn't caught. Meanwhile, the police are trying to fix up Miguel's awful confession because they're just getting shots fired left and right from the press. Like, look at them. They're just letting this like low time drug dealer get away. Like he's not even a criminal mastermind. He's not even a mafia boss. Like the dude hasn't been in prison for a million times. He gets caught in the stupidest ways. Interpol can't even catch him. And like, what's up with this confession? This is the weirdest story. So a lot of speculation is that Miguel's first confession came right after the first autopsy was done. So they got whatever facts that they could, and they made him concoct this little story to fit around it. Then the police performed a second autopsy. And allegedly, they wanted Miguel to fix up his confession to cover all the other questionable parts. Make it make more sense. But here's the shocking part, okay? The first autopsy pretty much got rid of a ton of forensic evidence because the doctors had washed the bodies clean afterwards. Yeah. All of the hair that was found on the bodies, um, like hairs that didn't belong to the girls, they were put into the same container. 
So all these like what seemingly were male genital hairs is what they believed were just put into the same container, just like mixing potentially explosive evidence together, contaminating it. When you find bugs on the body, like uh, maggots, you usually keep a sample because it tells you a better time of death. Maybe it can even tell you where they died, what type of environment they died in. They didn't keep samples of the larvae found on the bodies. Oh, I didn't know they keep that too. Yeah, not. I mean, not all of it, but like you know, little samples. Wow. Okay. Then the really annoying thing is that the doctors just unnecessarily amputated random body parts. Like I think that there were ways to finish their report, ways to finish out what happened to the girls without amputating body parts. But they just, I'm like, in some aspects of this case, they just went all out, and then some aspects they did not even do their jobs one percent. But it just sounds yeah. like there's so many mess up from every angle. Yes. Like the police, the the examiner, the. And I think that's why there's a huge conspiracy that forms later from the internet, essentially. Yeah, that's just so frustrating. Yeah, it, it's just weird. And they use like the same doctor for everything, which I think is also really bad. I mean, I mm-hmm. get it. Maybe you're stuck on resources. I don't know. But this is this is like the biggest crime of the century in Spain at the time. I mean, you're supposed to put the top of the top. Everyone should be checks and balances in this situation. No one should have a definitive answer. Everyone should check everybody's work. Mm-hmm. But they didn't really have that. So either way, the second autopsy is done. Which, side note, it's going to make you more mad. They have uh, You have to tape autopsies. I mean, in every case, they tape autopsies. Because you have to show it to the jury. You have to show that the doctor didn't plant evidence, that they were using the right methods, the right procedures to gather said evidence, right? But later, they would just, like, edit the tapes. Why? I don't know. Like, they made it so jumpy. They would edit the tapes to show for the trial that it would only be, like, 20 minutes long. For all three autopsies of the three girls. And suddenly Miguel had a new confession. Magically. Hours after the second autopsy. And he said, well, we actually didn't ask the girls to come with us. You're right. Because they wouldn't agree to such a thing. <laughs> of course they wouldn't. So we, uh, we drove with a gun held to their heads. And Antonio had hit one with the gun. Which explains why, you know, Miriam's teeth were knocked out. Explains the broken teeth, right? Right. Then we got out and uh, we raped them. Because Antonio hates women. He had been talking about how he wanted to kill women. How much he hated them. Now, Miguel never told the police. And the police allegedly never bothered to ask. Because where were the bodies? Like, where did you torture them? That's not where you buried them. This was essentially a dump site. Where did you do this to the bodies where were they murdered also where are the heads they didn't get any of this information from this confession also conveniently miguel suddenly stated that they had gardening tools in the trunk even though they're not gardeners they're far from it they rob banks for a living essentially in houses they use this to dig up a hole and place the girls in there so this is not in the confession, but um, potentially where the girls was killed was the Anglais brothers. They had a hangout spot, which was just a shed. It was near one of their friend's houses, and this friend would help pawn all of their stolen things, and he had a shed in the backyard. Now, it's a big theory that that's where the girls were tortured and murdered. Of course, the police searched it. There was no evidence there. Antonio continued to hide out there while he was on the run from the police, but the, the friend who would pawn things for them, he eventually called them. He's like, hey, police, I got Antonio here. So while Antonio is out, he comes back and he sees the whole shed is surrounded by cops and he manages to get away. 
but there was a photo that was released to the press that they did take inside the shed and it was the bed where Antonio allegedly was sleeping in and the whole thing was covered like a set in porn magazines it looked really staged like I don't know how you just I don't know it's just the whole thing is weird he's sleeping on magazines like he's sleeping with the magazines like they're on top of the blanket so I imagine if he were to get under the blanket the magazines would slip off to the sides of the bed so it just doesn't make sense it looks so weirdly staged oh it's like someone made the bed and then just magazines. like scattered porn magazines on top. Uh-huh. So everyone was like, what the I heck see, is I that? See, I see. So someone's almost like someone making this photo for the press reason. Yes. And it makes it seem like, oh, the police are trying to tell the press, see, this guy is like a sex monster. Mm. Like he's just a sexually driven person, which I'm not saying I doubt any of that. Right. But it's just like the staging of it was so odd. I can't imagine someone naturally just living their life like that with the porn magazines on top of the blanket. Just seems uncomfortable and unnatural. So they still don't catch Antonio. Now, there were reports that Antonio was going around with an axe, threatening truck drivers for rides. (laughs) I'm so confused. He starts leaving these little clues, these little breadcrumbs all over the place. It was almost too easy. Like the police were like, oh, well, we found him here because he left all of his stuff here. He left all this evidence, but he darn it, he got away. So then a theory started emerging by the press. That Antonio had actually been framed by the police. He was their fall guy. Now, I don't really know what that means because the police kept focusing on the fact that Antonio had dyed his hair. That was their main thing. It almost seemed like that was why they hadn't caught Antonio. Because he had kept dyeing his hair. But if the police were making this up, I mean, it makes him look so stupid. But if they're not making this up, I mean, it's just, what? Mind you, this guy's kind of dumb. He's kind of an idiot. He isn't the smartest diabolical criminal. He doesn't have all these crazy connections. He doesn't have this money to just get away. He's not a mafia boss. I mean, he's seen as a little shrimp. He was so harmless that the police and the prison guards were like, hey, do you want a vacation from prison? But suddenly they're framing it as if this guy is like this mastermind serial killer. Oh, he's just so good. He's probably off vacationing in Bora Bora right now, just living the life. The rumors only get ballsier. They only get crazier. Antonio becomes some sort of legend, almost a myth. Does he even exist? We don't know. Some people say that he's back in his home country, Brazil, living it up. Oh, no, I heard he's in Portugal. Yeah, this person said that he was hanging out with Antonio in Portugal, but then Antonio tried to steal his passport. So they're not on good terms anymore. Then another wild story that he had snuck onto a cargo ship from Portugal to Ireland. But since police were waiting at the dock, he had put on a life vest before they got to the shores of Ireland, jumped into the harsh waters, Jason Bourne style, Mission Impossible, then swam to a shore that was far away from the police, washed ashore, ripped off his life vest, ripped off his wet clothes, you know, found a little cottage house that he broke into, showered, started living a little low-key life in Ireland. This was a strong, almost credible theory because Interpol said that they found his fingerprints on the cargo ship. But later it was confirmed that it was a partial palm print, which, you know, palm prints are unique. There's a lot of identifying factors in a palm print, but a partial palm print, I don't know, you know, maybe not as unique. Then a skull was found off the coast of Ireland, just a skull. And everyone was convinced, oh, it's got to be him. But when they tested the DNA, it wasn't Antonio. Then he was later allegedly spotted in Uruguay. I mean, regardless, he's still not caught to this day. He is on one of Interpol's most wanted lists. 
and a huge speculation is that right after the girls went missing, he had fled Spain. So they start looking for him in January. But the girls went missing in November. That gives him two months lead if he had left Spain in November. The only thing that disproves this theory is that some eyewitnesses had seen him in Spain in the general area around January getting his hair dyed. But, I mean, you know, that doesn't make sense either. Some people speculate that he's not even alive anymore. Maybe he's dead. So while the press is having a field day with this, trying to figure this out, Miguel ends up getting an alibi the night of the murders. Someone comes forward to say, wait a minute, the night of the murders, November 13th, I had seen Miguel out to dinner with a man. You saw what? So back to the drawing board, everyone goes. And suddenly Miguel has a new confession. He says, you know what? We had taken the girls out into the middle of nowhere. We tied them up. We assaulted them. And then we thought, well, let's go eat something. That was exhausting. You know, criminals, you get hungry. So they went out to eat, left the girls alive and tied up. And they didn't untie each other. They didn't run. They didn't scream. They didn't do anything. Went to go get dinner and came back before killing them. So you're like, okay, why does this story not make sense? Why wouldn't they kill the girls before they go to dinner, right? Because that seems more plausible. But experts believe that the girls were tortured for hours, if not days, before they were murdered. So if he stated that they killed the girls right after they assaulted them and went to dinner, then the story wouldn't fit with the autopsies. So he gave a series, a series of confessions that went along with the updates on the autopsies and the updates of the case. But when finally he was put in front of a judge, he claimed all of his confessions were coerced and he was tortured. He said that he only ID'd the girls because he had seen them on TV. He was scared to say no to the police. He had committed a ton of other crimes. That day, that day he had an alibi. He said that him and Antonio and Antonio's brother Maurizio went to rob a bank. They went shopping afterwards with their robbed money. They went out to eat at bars. They hung out with friends. And that's what they did. Is that verified? Somewhat. But the judge says, okay, well, now you got to go back to custody because something's not making sense here. So he goes back into jail. And it was only a few months later that Miguel conveniently reconfesses to everything. And he says, sorry, Judge, I was just in a silly, goofy mood, but I totally did that. But his confession would constantly change. So he went from saying he had consensual sex with the girls, then to watching them get raped, and then just knowing that it happened, like just hearing it, just finding out later. And now suddenly there were other people in his new confession. So apparently brother Mauricio, he that went to rob the bank with them. I'm sorry, these pronunciations are so bad. I'm so sorry. And then a friend of Antonio's named El Nano, who is a teenager. He doesn't even know his real name. They just said he's Antonio's friend and he's 15 years old. They were all there. They were also all trying to kill the girls. So a year later, he has one last confession while he's still waiting for trial. He said that Antonio kept talking about how he wanted to rape girls. He thought it was all joking, but that weekend, Antonio is driving. Miguel's in the passenger seat. The two guys are in the back. So El Nano, the teenage friend, and one of the brothers. They're driving around looking for girls, and they see three near the club, and they say, hey, let's drop you off. But instead, they drive them to the middle of nowhere at gunpoint, and he claims he didn't assault any of the girls. He was just too drunk and high. He didn't even know what was going on. But the other three guys, they did. He sobered up when he had heard three gunshots go off and he rushed to the scene and he realized that Antonio had killed them. Antonio forced Miguel to dig a grave while he held a gun to his head. And that's what happened. So finally, after four years since his arrest, the trial starts. 
but Miriam's dad, Fernando, wants a delay. So a lot of people were shocked by this because it seemed like this is everything that the family had been waiting for, finally, to get some justice. But Miriam's dad, Fernando, said, I want more DNA testing to be done. So they had found some DNA on the rugs, which could either be blood or even possibly semen. They wanted to wait and test that. And then, you know, the hairs that were found, the 15 hairs, they were like 15 pubic hairs almost. So a couple of them had matched Antonio and matched, yeah, Miguel. Shut up. But the rest of the hairs... It said that the DNA could belong to at least seven more men. <gasps> no way. Because, I mean, you don't have to necessarily match the DNA to a specific person, yeah. but you can tell which DNA is different from the rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we know that at least seven people were involved. No way. Unless somehow, I mean, uh, well, I don't want to say definitively because the way that they handled the evidence is so horrendous. But if it is handled correctly, then yeah. Seven different DNA profiles. So they're like, okay, well, let's just wait and test these DNA profiles and try to find out who they belong to. Because, I mean, Fernando had seen the police files and he said that he was so skeptical. He was one of the biggest critics against the police. He said, other than the hair, there wasn't really evidence on Miguel other than his confessions. And it just didn't seem like Miguel was the mastermind of this all. There must have been smarter people involved. Fernando even believed that there was there was something bigger going on, something darker, like a big organization. Maybe it was human trafficking, maybe even government officials, because why is this so botched to even begin with? That's what he said. He'd later get sued for all of this. By who? Government officials. Because <sighs> he, he went out to just name everyone. He was just naming people left and right. He got sued for a ton of money. So this causes a huge shock to everyone. I mean, this is an emotionally chaotic situation. So some of the rest of the victim's parents, I mean, they were cheering him on. Some of them were saying, what are you doing? Let's just get justice. Let's get closure. What's your deal? You're doing too much. What do you mean a dark government conspiracy? You're going crazy. So it was just, I mean, it was just causing like a big rift between everyone. But regardless of Fernando, the trial goes on as scheduled. Now, it helped that Miguel was very passive during trial. He didn't have any bad records while he was waiting in prison. But strangely, his attorney just like kept getting fired or quitting or forcing to step down or whatever. So that's not a good look for the case because he just had like 50 million different attorneys for one trial. And after three months, the judge sentenced Miguel to 175 years in prison. He was found guilty of kidnapping, rape, sexual assault, possession of a firearm, murder, and accessory after the fact. Then in 2013, it was deemed in Spain that holding a prisoner for more than 30 years is cruel and unusual punishment. Are you serious? And Miguel was released November 29th of 2013. He did a couple of interviews where he said, woo is me for being the most hated man in Spain. Like he was a little bit complaining a little bit. Now, it's hard to say where he is now. It seems like he has been laying really low since. Kind of like Carla Homolka, remember? Like the the criminals that just get released and then, you, you know, people are trying to find them on Facebook and stuff, but they've changed their names. They're just laying low, not trying to be out there. I mean, I don't know how to feel. I do feel like his confessions were coerced. But I don't think that he's innocent. Hold on. You mentioned there was a tape. Oh, I'm getting there right now. What happens to the family members afterwards? So Miriam's mom was diagnosed with liver cancer. She was placed on the transplant list and she requested her name be removed. 
she said she wanted the liver to go to someone who had um, something to live for, who wanted to live. This is uh, Fernando's wife, and she said after Miriam had passed, Fernando had quit his job, and his whole life became figuring out what happened. He never even came home, really. He stayed at hostels. Their relationship just fell apart. She just didn't have anything anymore. So she passed away a year after the trial. Fernando went on to write a book with a true crime author called What Happened in Alcacer. Now, this was just a book that was very harsh on the investigation. The police, the doctors, the DAs involved also included crime scene photos. A lot of information that wasn't available to the public was included in the book. Desiree's mom filed a lawsuit against the authors. Spain wanted the book off the shelves, which then caused another internet conspiracy of like, why does Spain want the book off the shelves? Sure, I get it. Like, there's it maybe it might be insensitive to the other victims families but like look at what happened in the media you really think that the government cares about insensitivity at this point like there was just a lot of conspiracies i'm not confirming any of this i'm just saying there were some conspiracies then fernando was fined nearly a million dollars to the prosecutor that he had dogged on the whole time yeah and it said that the author the true crime author that he had partnered up with had received from someone anonymously i don't know how he got his hands on this but he said that he had gotten the snuff film he gave it to the government and they said well the case is closed and they didn't do anything about it now he can't really prove to anyone that he has it because he can't put it up he can't show anyone without being arrested so he's kind of like i don't know what to do i mean some people think that this is true some people think it's false i i don't know so Fernando went on to do more interviews. He got fined like a bajillion more times. He was sued a bajillion more times. He later opened up his own business selling mattresses, like making mattresses. And he is raising his two sons. He is remarried. He was interviewed uh, extensively for the, the Netflix docuseries. And I think that there's just a lot of layers to this case, which is why I recommend that docuseries. So you have some people saying that Fernando was just getting obsessed with media attention, but it's so hard to say that about people. It kind of reminds me of um, how people were handling the case in um, with Lucy. Do you remember in Japan? I did a case on this, like, vanished in Japan, um, Lucy Blackman. It kind of reminds me of that case where the dad and the siblings, they went to Japan and they had to play the media, which how can you get mad at that? Because, I mean, really, that's the world that we live in. So they had to literally have, like, a PR strategy of what makes the press want to even talk about their daughter's disappearance. Yeah. The people also accused him of being media hungry, of loving the attention, right? So I don't know. Where is the line? I don't think we'll ever know. It's not like these people tried to be like reality TV stars afterwards. It's just they wanted more and more attention for the case. And I think that also I think that they were just mad. Mm -hmm. Sure, even afterwards, maybe they did more interviews just because they were so mad. You want to like expose something because you're like something went wrong here. What happened? You know, I think that's what was going on. But there are a lot of layers in the series of just showing like these are the tensions that were happening. Some of the government really hated Fernando for all of this. I mean, there was just a lot. The girls were buried together as best friends in a local cemetery. And that is the story of the Alcazar girls. And if you watch the docuseries and you can find it on YouTube, um, you can actually hear Tony calling into the radio station, dedicating the song to her friends. And her parents said that they listened to it over and over and over again. It's the day before she went missing. 
and you just like you hear the carefree spirit you also hear how much love she had for her friends and she was just she was 15 and the other two girls they were 14 Desiree and Miriam so that is today's Halloween mini-sode I hope you guys enjoyed and please stay safe out there and I will see you guys on Wednesday bye Thank you.